Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the eighth week of our series on Matthew chapters 10 and 11 called Offensive Love. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. And we're looking at the section in, in the book of Matthew where it calls us to share our faith and, and realizing that, yeah, it's a faith that some people are going to stumble over, but it's a faith that is ultimately true that we all desperately need. And so this morning, we're going to focus on Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 25. And uh, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up to that passage and, and keep it open throughout our time so you could follow along with the points that come from the text um, if you don't have one, there's one in front of you. We'd invite you to go ahead and use that. It's on page 816 of, of the pew, or Bible there at your seat. Let me begin by reading this passage we're going to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 16. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John neither came eating or drinking, and they said, he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Well, here we go. Let's see. It's not not proceeding here for me. So, thank you. Uh, verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where the most of his, his mighty works had been done uh, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the might, if the mighty works done in uh, you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you would be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had been done uh, in you that had been done in in Sodom, it would have been remained until this day. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you again for the privilege of this time. Father, for the principles and truths that are here, the things that you're continuing to teach me. Father, I pray for your blessing on our time now. I pray for your blessing on on the study. Father, I pray that you would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help us each to hear what you have for us this morning. Father, we do pray for your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Luke chapter 18 tells us of this one time that Jesus was teaching and and parents began to bring uh, their children to Jesus. Even young babies were told. And his disciples saw this and they tried to stop him. And Jesus, in the midst of that, said, he said, you know, no, uh, you know, come, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say, whoever does not receive me of the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, we have to ask, okay, what is Jesus saying here? What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? Why is that important? See, there are some that have suggested that, you know, that his point is to accept God's word. We have to, in a sense, turn off our brain, have this blind faith, because the idea that religious faith and and logic and reason are incompatible. Now, I've even heard some say that, you know, that that we need to be able to say, well, we know certain things are, are, are not really true, but we just believe them because that's the realm of faith. 
Is that what the Bible teaches? Some might even point to one of the verses that we just read a moment ago in verse uh, 25 and say that seems to be what Jesus is saying because we look at it and what does he say? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What does that mean? Is God opposed to wisdom? Is he opposed to understanding? That we need the ignorance of a young child to understand it? You see, these are some really important questions. And I'll let you know, there's a lot of people that have come to some really wrong and even dangerous conclusions about that. So we have to understand what he's saying. And we're going to get there, but I'm going to come back to it in a few minutes. But we're going to look at this whole section as in, that we read a moment ago. And, and as we do, we always have to remember that, that it's important to look at any section in context. And so to see the context of this verses, I'm gonna actually need to go back and spend a few minutes reviewing a couple verses that we looked at at the end of last week's message. In verses 16 through 19, Jesus is teaching about the real reason that people reject him. And if you have your Bibles open, look at verses 16 and 17 with me. Jesus said, but to whom shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to the playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, what he's doing is he's describing a cranky child who refuses to be pleased by anything. Those of you who have young children, you can maybe remember times you've got you know, a young child that just, just decides to be cranky, just decides to be disagreeable. And you could tell them, hey, let's go do this. And you could do something that you know that they almost always love to do. And suddenly they're like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do anything. And they just have this, you know, this disagreeable attitude. And what Jesus is saying here is that when people come to God, they give a reason, but the reason that they give is almost never the real reason. Now, the picture here is he's talking about kids playing in a marketplace, and the picture is this. You know, people there all lived in, in smaller towns. In these small rural towns, the two big events that would gather the whole city together would generally be a, a wedding and a funeral. And, and these were huge events, multi-day affairs, where you know, everybody would gather together. They would have food and they would have music. And, and, um, and so in a sense, you have these kids coming and they're at the marketplace, parents are shopping, and, and a ringleader comes and says, okay, let's, our games are gonna come from our experiences. So a ringleader comes and says, hey, let's play wedding. And he's got a flute out and he starts to play a wedding song. And he says, okay, you could be the bride, you could be the groom, let's all dance. And, and, a, and a, the little kids at the corner said, I don't wanna do that. You know, I don't like the wedding game. I don't want to do that. And uh, that's a stupid game. And so, so they come and they say, okay, well, let's, you don't want to do that game. Let's do, let's do the funeral game. And so he starts to play a dirge and he says, okay, let's do this. And, and, and suddenly they try to change the game and the little child still sit there. No, that's a dumb game too. I don't want to do that game. I don't want to play. Now, the reason that the child is given is saying, I don't like the tune. But what Jesus is looking at and saying, they're basically lying to themselves because when you don't like this tune, you don't like this tune, you keep changing the tune, you don't like it. The real reason isn't that they don't like the tune. The real reason they're saying is, you know, behind what they're saying is, it's not that I don't like the tune, I don't like it, it's that it's your tune. I wanna be the one that sets the tune. I wanna be the leader, I wanna be in charge. And, and what he's saying is that's ultimately true with us in our relationship with God. We give a reason, but the real reason behind the reason that people reject God is that, you know, we'll come to all the, I don't, here's why I don't go to church, here's why I don't believe in God, here's, but ultimately they're really just excuses. The real reason is it's a power issue. It's that we come and we say, 
you know, it's not, we'll say, I don't like the tune, but ultimately it's saying, I don't like that it's your tune. I don't wanna to come to God and, and, and give him authority over my life. I don't wanna admit that he's God and, and suddenly I lose the, the control over setting the tune of my life. And what he's doing here is he's really getting into the whole issue of what does it mean to believe? He's defining belief and unbelief. What does it mean to believe that the Bible's account is true? Is it just saying, okay, I think it, you know, I, I believe that it happened, that he actually lived and died and rose again. Does it mean that I like what Jesus says or that I follow him because I think that he might make my life better? Now, faith is those things, but it's more than those things. To believe in Jesus means that we not only think that he is God, but it means that we then act as if that's true. We relate to him as God so that we, in a sense, submit to his authority in our lives. That's what Jesus means when he says at the end of verse 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. He's basically saying it's one thing to say that, but if, you really, if it's really true in your life, it's gonna be evident in your, in your actions, in your life. And that's the point that he continues to make in these next verses. And he begins to talk about these cities where he had done much of his ministry, where people had heard him and, and seen him do countless miracles. So let me read again in verses 20 to 24. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Karazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in Sakath and Ashes but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in the heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works had been done in, uh, and you had been done in Sodom, it would have been re remained to this day. But I tell you it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now here's what Jesus is doing. He has two groups of cities here. The first one is Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. These were all pagan Gentile cities that were known to totally reject God. They were known for their immorality. The other three cities are Jewish cities, Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These were all Jewish cities where Jesus had spent a lot of time. He had done a lot of miracles. And what he's teaching us here is that there is more than one way to reject Jesus. There is more than one kind of unbelief. You see, one type of unbelief is to reject Jesus in the most obvious way. You know, to come and to, and to totally reject uh, God, to totally reject his truth. That was the case in these cities of Tyre and, and, and Sodom and, and Sid, uh, uh, Sidon. They totally rejected God. They totally rejected the moral teaching of God. And no one would have been surprised when they heard Jesus come and work, speak words of condemnation against these cities. Everybody knew that they had, you know, their lifestyle, everything was total rejection of God. But what was surprising was that he then came and spoke words of condemnation against these Jewish cities. Now here's what's really surprising is because you could look at this and you could think, okay, well, well, these must have been cities where Jesus came in and, and he was rejected and they, you know, I know some tried to stone him and that must have happened here. No, but if you look at what the Bible tells us, there's actually a lot written about Jesus' ministry in these cities. And what you find is that, is that most of the people in these cities actually affirmed Jesus, they liked him. You know, what you find is that they were receptive. In fact, John chapter one tells us that at least three of Jesus' disciples came from Basidia. 
It was the place, and Luke 9 tells us, it was the place where Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Matthew 4 tells us that Jesus not only began his ministry in Capernaum, but that was the hub of his ministry. He actually moved there, and when he wasn't traveling, that was his home base. It was the place that he spent the most time. He did the most miracles. And what it's teaching us is that it's possible to actually like Jesus, to like his ministry and, and, and still not believe him. It's a type of unbelief where we like him, but we then reject his authority. They really liked Jesus. They liked him as a great teacher, but look at what Jesus says, why he's speaking these words of condemnation. He says, for if the mighty works had been done in you entire sort of they, Sidon, they would have repented, but you haven't repented. He's saying, yes, you liked me, but you didn't repent. In fact, an example of this, even in one of these cities, is if you go to John chapter six, you read that Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, one of these cities, and, and there's huge crowds that are following. And at one point, he, then Jesus turns to the crowd and he speaks some strong words of, of, of you know, to follow me, you've got to basically, you know, you know, totally commit yourself to me. And we're told that the response, look, well, look what it says, John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So when he looked and he really challenged them, oh, they liked him as a moral teacher, they liked him as a miracle worker, but when he called them to totally commit their lives to his leadership, to repent, they weren't willing to do that. They use the imagery of Jesus' story in verses 16 and 17. You know, they refused to give up the right to play their own game. You know, hey, Jesus, we'll follow you as long as you're playing a tune we like. But as long as soon as you play a tune that we don't like, we're, we're not going to agree because we want to decide the tune. So what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? It's not just a matter of believing that the Bible is true or even liking him. It's acting on that belief. If I really believe that he is God, then I'm going to give him the place of God in my life. See, ultimately, it means that I believe and I surrender to his authority. I surrender to him as God. And Jesus confronted the people in these towns. Why? Because they didn't repent. They didn't do this. See, true belief always will express itself in repentance. See, if I really believe that Jesus is God, it means that I will agree with God that I'm wrong in trying to control my own life. And agreeing with God about sin, that's what the Bible calls confession. I confess, I agree with God, God, I'm trying to control my own life, that's wrong. And I don't just stop there, I not only agree that that's wrong, but then I come to God and I say, okay, God, I, because you're God, I now give you the right to be, take leadership in my life. I give you the right to change me and, and, when you, and to point things out in my life that are wrong. And when your word says that something's wrong, I will try to submit and let you change me to let you mold me to who you want me to be. That's what repentance is. See, again, to put it another way, if I really believe that Jesus is God, I will act on that belief by making him God in all areas of my life. My friends, the question is, have you ever done that? You know, are you here as a follower because I like them? You know, as long as I agree with them and, and as, you know, as long as I didn't step on toes. Or you really said, okay, God, I want to embrace you as, as my Lord, my Savior, and my God. I give you control. And there may be some here that, you know, you look at it and say, well, I'm not sure I've really done that. And again, Jesus' words here are not to condemn us. They're to get our attention because his invitation is to say, come and follow me. Come and follow me because, yes, we're going to see next week, you know, my path is a path of rest, is a path of blessing. Now, it's a scary thing to give God control over our life, and I know that. 
But why would anybody do that? Well, that's what Jesus then addresses in verse 25. He says, you know, he talks about the idea of the folly of, of uh, intellect and the wisdom of children. In verse 25, we read, uh, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And this is really getting to this beginning of where we started the message. You know, you, know, you know, this idea of what does it mean to have a childlike faith? When Jesus says that God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding, he's talking about human wisdom. And the human wisdom that he's talking about here is the wisdom of our world that assumes that we can be our own source of truth. We can figure things out on our own. The wisdom of the world that believes that we're evolving in our knowledge, we're evolving in our morality, we're becoming better and better by our own efforts. We're able to grow into the truth and morality in our life, so therefore we don't need truth outside of ourselves. And because we don't need truth outside of ourselves, therefore there's no authority outside of ourselves to whom we're accountable. It's a wisdom that's ultimately defined by an arrogance. Why? Because it's saying, I am my own source of truth. I am, you know, basically I will agree with God as long as he agrees with me. And basically I'm, I'm the ultimate end. See, it's a wisdom of the world that Proverbs, or Psalm 53 says, the fool says in her heart, there is no God. When we come and we say, there is no God to whom I'm ultimately accountable, or where there's a God who's under me, that's not, that's not wisdom, that's foolishness, because it's not true. It's an ultimate folly, because it's ultimately building life on a lie, on a deception. Look what the Bible says about wisdom. What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And what it's saying is the beginning of wisdom is realizing that we are not an end to ourselves, that we are not the source of our own truth. There is a God who has created us. And he's not only created us, he's created everything so that when we look at everything in life, even the whole idea of what's right and wrong, what's true, all of that is, is defined by God. And if we want to live a life that's defined by true wisdom, then we don't start by saying, well, what do I think is right in my own arrogance and ignorance? Or what does my culture say that is right? Well, everybody in the culture says is right, so let's look at this dysfunctional culture and what they say is right, well, well, that's true for me. No, what I need to do is I need to start by looking to God. God is the source of, of absolute truth. See, Jesus claims that he is the creator God. Again, he's not only the creator of us, he's the creator of everything in the universe. And as such, he is the source of absolute truth. And by that, what I mean, it's absolutely true all the time, all people, all times, all culture, because it's outside of me. It's outside of time. It's outside of our culture. It's unchanging. Our modern culture and its arrogance thinks that we can be the source of ultimate truth. So much so that we can now judge God's word. And you have people all the time that will say things now, well, well, we've evolved to the point where now the Bible says this, but now it's outdated. And so we have to change what the Bible says because um, you know, certain things don't apply anymore. And we need to let the Bible evolve with, with us. But according to Jesus, that's, that's total foolishness. You know, the, God is the source of absolute truth. God is outside of us, outside of our time and our culture. And that means that Jesus, his claims, his teaching, his morality, all of that were, are just as true now as then the way that we were first said. They're not in any way to, contingent on or they don't change with time or culture. 
Truth doesn't change. Yeah, culture may change. But if we and our culture are to be healthy, what we need to realize is that it's not like saying, okay, well, we're evolving to be a greater health. No, we need to realize that our tendency is to evolve away from what we're created for. And we're gonna be healthy only to the degree that we align ourselves with what God says is true. Now, some people will say, well, doesn't, you know, science prove that the Bible's untrue and doesn't disagree and, you know, you know how can we take all our truth from a 2,000-year-old book? Again, that's what Jesus is talking about here when he says that God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. Now, here's, here's what we look at it and say, okay, what is it saying? Is the Bible inconsistent with logic and with education, with reason? Are we called to have this blind faith that goes against what we know to be true? Well, what does the Bible say? What do we, can we know about faith and the evidence of logic and reason? See, people that will teach this idea that the Bible calls us to a blind faith that goes against science and logic are wrong. That's never the kind of faith that the Bible calls us to. In fact, the Bible's clear. It calls us to a faith that is rooted in fact. And because it's rooted in fact, it's always going to be consistent with science, with logic, with reason. In fact, I'm going to argue that it is more consistent with the evidence of all those things than any other worldview. And the reason for that is actually kind of simple. Because all truth is absolute. Meaning that if something is true in one area, it's true for all areas. It's truth is something that just conforms to the real world. And so if something is true in one area of life, it's true, let's say it's true scientifically, how the physical world works, then it's also true in all other areas, including religion. So if something is true in religion, and what what the Bible says about God and who he is and where the world comes from, that's not only a religious truth, it's a historical truth, it's a scientific truth. So let's say, for example, you know, the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a religious statement. It is also a historical statement. It's saying that in time, this is how the world began. This is an accurate telling of history. It's also a scientific statement because it describes the true nature of the world. Now, how does this work in the context then of this idea of faith and where faith comes in? Well, here's where we've gotta say, you know, the true faith doesn't go against logic and reason. It's not a leap in the dark. Faith is, again, isn't a blind leap that goes against logic and reason. It, the Bible never tells you to turn off your brain and, and, and to believe. It's always rooted in truth. And it goes to incredible lengths to show how everything that is said is actually consistent with facts and with history and with science. It's not only, you know, um, you know something that is, um, you know, th- that, is in, you know, that is not inconsistent, the Bible calls us to be able to look at the world around us, to look at history, and to see the evidence. So a good example of that is, is look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says this, but look in your hearts to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness, gentleness and respect that we should have this readiness of this preparation to say there's a reason, there's evidence, we should understand that. But we're not arguing people, we're doing it with gentleness and respect, speaking to the hearts. But we should understand these things because we have a faith that is rooted in truth, in reason. Again, the picture that many people portray is that Christianity is this blind faith that, that goes against logic and reason. It's a leap into the dark. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of this idea that, well, I know that's not true, but I just, 
close my eyes and hope that I'll step out and God will be there because it's a spiritual truth. But again, the Bible never calls us to that. Let me try to illustrate this with a, a picture that I think makes it more clear. Some of you know that periodically I'll use a movie clip to illustrate a point. And uh, this is, I think, my favorite movie clip of all. And some of you may, I've, I've used it before and, and every couple of years, it's kind of like I'll come back to it because it's such a good point. It's from the third Indiana Jones movie, the last Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which came out a number of years ago now, and it's about Indiana Jones going and trying to find the, um, uh, the Holy Grail. And as he gets close to the Grail, he's, he's come to these last three challenges, and the last of these challenges is what's called the Leap of Faith. And, and I want you to watch this clip to the very end because it, it illustrates both the wrong view of what faith is and the right view of what faith is. Watch and see. Now, what people often say that faith is, is this, this leap into the dark. Everything says there's nothing there, but I just close my eyes, and if I believe enough, there's gonna be something there. You know, this idea that there's a cliff, and evidence says there's nothing there, yet we step out in faith. That's not biblical faith. What biblical faith is, is what was shown at the very end of that clip, where he picked up a bunch of dirt, and he threw it out there, and in the, the bridge was still invisible, but you saw the outline of the bridge by where the dirt fell and where it was held up. And what it's saying is the Bible is like that, where it calls us to a faith that, that, you know, that comes and not, the evidence is against you and I'm gonna go against it. No, because truth is truth, so all the evidence actually points towards the truth of God. So we're called to pick up the evidence, throw it out there, and we can see the outline. And if you throw it out there and it falls to the ground, then you're foolish to step. Don't do that, but we see the outline of faith. Now, what you've gotta realize is that you see the outline. Does it totally prove? Can I prove the resurrection happened? No, I can't go back and restate it. 
you know, what I can do is I can look at all the evidence and the evidence shows it's consistent. It's most, it's actually the most accurately you know, attested to event in ancient history. Can I prove that God created the heaven and the earth? I can't go back and recreate it. I can't do a test tube. But evidence is most consistent with that. You see, the principle that we've got to see here is that while consistent with known evidence, faith also goes beyond what we can know and what we can see. And so there is still a need for faith. See, God's truth is consistent with logic, but it also goes beyond our logic and reason. It goes beyond what we can see. It requires me to believe in something beyond what I can control. But again, the other religions are gonna say, you know, but you throw it out there and you just believe. There is no evidence, but you just believe because it's a religious claim. No, Christianity is a faith that is rooted in, in history and science and knowledge. So now there are some people that will say that no, it's a blind faith, and, and these are often even kind of the atheists, those who reject, and, and they will then argue, well, no, science gives evidence that, that disproves Christianity. But what I want you to see is that's not at all the case. They're the ones that are taking the blind leap of faith. They're the ones that are saying, I believe this is to be true, and even though evidence proves it's not, I still have to step out. There's a blind arrogance in the world's wisdom. Now, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna just briefly touch on how this create, plays out in creation and evolution debate, and I wanna acknowledge that I'm going to, I'm gonna just touching on this issue in a sense that I'm, I'm giving my conclusions without kind of the evidence behind it. We just don't have time to do that this morning. If you wanna look further, back in 2016, we did a series on this, a longer series, and if you wanna go online and look at that, you know, let us know, we'll make sure and make it available to you, because there's tons of evidence that proves this. You see, there are wise, many wise, the wise and educated in our culture that will argue that science disproves God. But, and they will argue, you know, that the evidence points in that way. But in reality, if you have an open mind and look honestly, what you're gonna find, the vast majority of evidence is far more consistent with, with the story of, of creation, that the world is created by God than it is with the idea that everything happened by accident, by chance. But here's what you have to realize. The people that are arguing that science disproves God really aren't arguing science. They're arguing scientism. They're arguing materialism. So basically what they do is that they start with the assumption that nothing can exist that we can't explain. It's the, the arrogance of I am God. Nothing can exist outside of me. So there can no, be no supernatural you know, uh, uh, explanation to everything. And since God is impossible, Therefore, all the evidence points towards the only thing that's possible, even though the evidence actually is, totally disagrees with it. It's not that they believe in their views because the evidence of science points towards it, but they assume that view before they look at the evidence and then have to somehow explain the evidence around it even when it totally disagrees. Let me give you just even one example of one professor who basically admitted this, uh, Dr. Richard uh, Lewinton, was a professor at Harvard, a gen uh, genesis, and one of the world's leading evolutionary biologists. And a number of years ago, he wrote basically an honest statement that basically is saying, we believe this not because of the facts, but because of our presupposition. And then we're taking a blind leap of faith against reason. Look what he says. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are, are against common sense is the key to understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. You know, it's against common sense is what he's saying. 
He continues, we take the side of science in spite of patently absurd, the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant provinces of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just so stories, because we have an our priori commitment, a commitment to materialism. He's admitting we're believing this in spite of the evidence that's against us because we start with the assumption that it has to be true. He continues, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we are forced by an arbitrary ad adherence to material cause to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that, concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to uninitiated. We have to do it, even though it's proven wrong. And he ends up in saying, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot into the door. You see what he's saying? I mean, this is what they're saying, basically. We are committed to this, and all the evidence is against it, but we're gonna step out because we start with the assumption, the arrogance, that there can be no God. There can be no God that we answer to. It's this operary commitment, this, this, you know, this assumption of that truth. There's, there can't be wisdom outside of me. Now, if you look at this, you say, you know, I'm gonna go back and say, what does God call this to? God's calling us to take the dirt, throw it on the bridge, and I'm throwing it out there and it's totally consistent with the creation uh, worldview. They're throwing it out there and it's falling to the ground and they're saying, but we know it's true even though all the dirt's falling to the ground, so we're gonna step out. That's foolishness. Let's take even one example. When you look at the whole, ex whole question of the origin of life, where does life come from? What is more consistent if you allow the possibility of divine creation or, or evolution? Scientists that study this, they will acknowledge that the idea that, that, you know, that somehow all the chemicals came together and just accidentally life came up. You know, they used to believe that when they thought that the cell was simple. Now that you understand the complexity, they acknowledge that is totally impossible. So you know what they do now? Well, we, we have to think of a new idea. So they come up with panspermia. There must have been aliens that came and brought life over. We don't know how life started there, but now we don't have to answer that. There's aliens that we have no evidence for that came and planted life here on Earth because that makes more sense. than Does it make more sense than explaining God? No. It's just saying, we, if there is no God, or that's multiverse you know, theory, and that's the whole idea too, and I won't get into that, it's big in the movies now, but it's basically saying, the only way to explain it is that if every world that could exist that means that the impossible could happen because everything that could happen could, hap you know, could happen. And if they're trying to make up all these ideas that somehow explain things that go against reason because they're not willing to let the divine foot in the door. See, when you look at it, that's what Jesus is saying. He's calling them and he's saying, you know, if the, to these cities, you know, if, the, if you, they saw the miracles, if these other cities saw the miracles, they would have repented. You have the evidence, but you don't believe. And in the same way, we might have our reasons, but they're excuses. The evidence is there. But we have to come to God in humility. That's why it says in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. God calls us to come to him in that humility. This admission that there is a God, I'm not him. There is a source of truth outside of me. And only if I learn to seek God's truth and, and, and because it's true and align myself with that, only will I understand that. There's a humility of, of true wisdom. That it comes, coming to God, I don't know it all, 
And, 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 and the fact is that it's hard. That's why Jesus talks about it being hidden. It's hidden for those that assume, I do know it all, I can find it. And as long as you start with that assumption, I don't want to answer to God, then these truths are going to be hidden from you. You will not be able to see what's right in front of you. You see, but the gap here aren't like the, you know, the good or the bad. And that's what we often think. You have the good and bad cities. Well, these were the good cities, the people, the gap ultimately that divides those who are followers of Christ and those who aren't, or those who are wise, who think they're wise, who think that they've got it all, that they don't, I don't need to surrender to God. And those who come to God in humility of a child and come as helpless. So what does a child do? A child comes and there's a dependency. A child knows that they need their parents. And so God's calling us to not only come with this, this humility of a childlike faith to, to look at truth, but ultimately to surrender to him, to come to him with this childlike faith. Be a spiritual child means that we realize that we're weak and that we're helpless, we're too sinful to do it on our own. And so we need to come to God for salvation. If you think about it, even some of you can relate to this where we have kids, you remember when you had little kids in preschoolers, that they come and, and, and they assume that as dad, you know better. You know, they, you tell them, hey, we're going somewhere, they're like, man, if you say it, we're going there, we're there with you. And then what happens when they get to be teenagers or young adults? And many of us know that suddenly these kids that trusted you, suddenly it's like, I know better. You tell them to do something, I don't, you know, I, I remember having conversations with my kids and telling them, you know, used to think that I knew a lot, I don't know anything now. Probably in about 10 years, I'm gonna learn a lot more. I'm gonna suddenly become wise. You know, but, but now it's like they question everything. And what's God's point here is that we can become like teenagers. That's the problem. These young adults that were like, no, I don't want to submit. I know better. I'm going to chest everything on my own. I'm not going to, you know, submit. And that's why we need to come back to the faith of a young child. Where we come back and we say, I don't know it all. I have this faith that recognizes in the humility, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I come to God and I say, God, I need what you have. I need your wisdom, I need, I need to surrender to you because only in that surrender will I find the life that I'm designed to have. And again, my friends, that's the God's call to each one of us. He calls us to a faith that is as knowledgeable faith that seeks, that seeks out and it's not a blind, blind leap into the dark, it's throwing the truth out, seeing the outline of truth. And if you're throwing truth out and it's falling to the ground, don't believe it, that's inconsistent with what's true. But Christianity is true. And some, if you're there and say, I don't believe, have you ever really tried it? Have you ever really researched it? Because I think you're gonna find that is the most consistent explanation of truth that is out there. But then, what is your response? Because I can sit there and like Jesus and, and you know, like what he says and, and still reject him, not have true faith. Because I'm coming and saying, I'm following, I'll follow you as long as I like your tune. That's not true faith. True faith is saying, okay, I not only see this, but I come in the humility of a child, and I say, God, I not only need knowledge, I recognize there is knowledge outside of myself, but I need that. And God, I ask you to forgive me where I've taken control of my own life. I wanna accept the gift of salvation through Jesus. I wanna, I wanna give you control because that's what I need. I need to align myself with truth. And no matter where you're at here today, you see, this is always Jesus' invitation to each one of us to come to him, and when we come to him, we find the life that we were designed for, a life of blessing, life that's not always easy, but a life that's good. Have you ever trusted in Christ? I hope and pray if you've never have done that, that you would do so even today. 
And that's it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Also, if you would like to go deeper into the discussion on the Bible, evolution, and the beginning of the universe, there's a link in the show notes to a series Pastor Mike did a number of years ago called Intelligent Design, where he goes much, much deeper than he was able to this morning. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.